Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, here we are, uh, almost at the end of July, and uh, that's 2010, in case you're joining us late. And uh, I don't know about you, but this has been a strange month for me. However, uh, I'll save those stories for the end of today's podcast. But first of all, I'd like to uh, thank four of our fellow saloners for sending in their generous donations to help offset some of the expenses here in the salon. And uh, these wonderful people are Ben P., Jeremy K., Hirono O., and our frequent donor and uh, longtime fellow saloner, Mark C. So uh, thank you all so very much for helping to keep the salon humming along each month. And uh, today we'll be humming along once again with the one and only Terrence McKenna. Now, the talk I'm going to play has uh, been sent to me by quite a few of our fellow saloners. In fact, I've received over a dozen copies of it, and uh, I believe you can also find it on YouTube and on the Internet Archive. But I feel this uh, particular talk is so important that uh, I want to mirror it here as well. The copy that I'm uh, actually going to play today was uh, the one sent to me by Alan Martin, who had this to say. I'm not sure if you have this already, but I thought I would send it along anyway, just in case. Here's uh, a blurb on it. Recorded in 1996 in Mannheim, Germany, this talk was recorded during the time that Terence McKenna and Sheldon Rockland were filming the documentary for Mystic Fire, which was originally titled Coincidencia Oppositorum, A Union of Opposites. Beyond that, I have no other information on the talk, but lots of the themes tie in neatly with recent podcasts. I hope it may be of some use to you. Well, uh, Alan, you were certainly right about this talk being of some interest to me, because uh, even though I knew about it, uh, until your email came in, I, I hadn't taken the time to listen to it before. And uh, now that I've already heard it twice, I'm looking forward to hearing it again one time more with you. And uh, I know that I've said this uh, not too long ago, in fact, but uh, I'm going to have to say it again today. Uh, this now is my favorite Terrence McKenna talk. I guess uh, maybe I was getting a little jaded and thinking that I had maybe heard just about everything Terrence had to say, but once again, he has uh, come up with a whole range of new material that I hadn't heard before. And hopefully it uh, will be as uh, interesting to you as it was to me. Originally, uh, I believe this talk was called The Winter King. However, uh, I've changed the title to Shamanism, Alchemy, and the 20th Century, which uh, I think better describes it. But uh, let's join Terrence now and uh, see whether or not you agree with me. About five years ago with Tim Leary, one raucous evening, maybe some of you managed to catch that event. Uh, this is a little more thoughtful and uh, reflective. I'm not here to talk or to speak or to promote my books as I have been in the past. Uh, this is the only public event that I'm doing in these ten days, and I'm very grateful uh, to David and Petra for inviting me. This is a wonderful facility and bringing you uh, plants and books and information. It's great to see that uh, Freak community is uh, 
alive and well in Mannheim. Uh, what I'm in Europe to do is to be part of a film-making effort, and I want to describe the project to you a little bit simply because it's what's on my mind, naturally, and to discuss the politics behind the making of this kind of a film. Uh, It's not a film about rave culture. It's not a film about Albert Hoffman. It's uh, not uh, a film about uh, body piercing or any of these things that great films need to be done about and have been done about. Uh, It's about one of your local heroes who is a great hero of mine and should be uh, a great hero to all freaks in Germany and everywhere. And I'm talking about uh, Frederick V, Elector Palatine, Prince of Heidelberg, King of Bohemia. Are you all familiar with this guy? Who? No. no? Oh well, this this is your guy. This is the prototypic freak of this area, and a freak who was not content to sit back and let things happen, but was willing to launch a grand alchemical dream of uh, a reformation of human society. So just to lay in the background for those of you who are not familiar, the historical incident that we're here to recreate here and later in Prague uh, has to do with the Prince Palatine of Heidelberg, a Protestant who wedded the granddaughter of Queen Elizabeth I of England, Elizabeth Stuart, the daughter of James I of England, This was an arranged wedding. They were both 16 years old at the time. Uh, Frederick went to England. The wedding was held in England. And then he returned with his very English bride uh, to Heidelberg. And they were the center of a movement of alchemical reformation and revolution that sought to take the Protestant Reformation, an enormous leap forward into a new world of spiritual uh, freedom and, uh, to my mind, uh, a very sort of psychedelic world. They were the heirs, the inheritors of the entire medieval worldview. It was folded in to this pair of 16-year-olds who were ruling the Palatinate of Heidelberg. And, and Frederick was an elector, meaning he was one of the seven princes who could choose uh, the emperor of, the, of what remained of the Holy Roman Empire at that time. And he conspired to become the king of Bohemia. The visionaries moved the entire court from Heidelberg from the small-time scene of, of, uh, of a principality to Prague to reoccupy the, uh, the office of the Holy Roman Empire with an emperor friendly to magic and alchemy who was the inheritor of a generation-old plan to create 
an alchemical reformation that had been hatched in the mind of the English alchemist and mathematician John Dee. And the ending of the story is not a happy ending, or perhaps it is. I mean, we can talk about that. Uh, On a superficial level, this alchemical dream, this Rosicrucian enlightenment, ended badly because the Habsburgs back in Madrid quickly got wind of what was going on and got an army together and sent it to Prague and laid siege to Prague and uh, Elizabeth fled to the Netherlands with her children. Frederick uh, was defeated at the Battle of the White Mountain and the alchemical dream died. And this was really in some sense the beginning of the Thirty Years' War. And as you know, going into the Thirty Years' War, Europe was a place of popes and kings. At the end of the Thirty Years' War, it was a place ruled by parliaments and peoples, and the entire medieval world was swept away. And out of uh, the the new political dispensation of uh, of the situation at the end of the Thirty Years' War, especially in England, modern science took hold and was born. And these angel-dealing, horoscope-casting, alchemy-pursuing visionaries uh, of this Rosicrucian Renaissance became simply objects of historical curiosity, completely incomprehensible to the people who followed them generation after generation after generation until I submit to you uh, the present. And in the present moment, we, like they, inherit a world whose ideologies are uh, exhausted and can only be refreshed from the margins and that was what this whole alchemical revolt was about. It was, it was about a, a, a suppressed marginal minority of deeply pietistic original thinkers, but heterodox, non-Christian, keeping together a tradition that I think has been reborn or rediscovered in our own time. And it's the tradition that... Uh, nature is uh, a great distillery of uh, complexity, alchemical gold, novelty, connection, whatever you want to call it, uh, in our own time through, through integrative sciences like ecology and uh, animal behavior and psychology, we have re-understood what was forgotten during the reductionist centuries of modern science. We've re-understood that uh, the world is one thing, and it's a living thing. It's a thing with an intent and a spirit within it. And this is the key concept, the concept that the alchemists 
and the hermetic dreamers and the occultists of the uh, alchemical and northern European Renaissance. They were trying to re- they were trying to um, strengthen and condense and distill and make actual this sense of community, this spiritus. Well, then with the rise of modern science, all of that is uh, anathema. And rational analysis tells us that uh, matter is simply atoms flinging themselves through space, obedient to certain mathematical laws that are invariant. And all the creativity, all the sense of connectedness that we experience as living beings, as members of a society, as human beings in contemplation of nature, all of that was denied. And it reaches its uh, ultimate culmination, just as an example, in the kind of statement such as was made by Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist, who said, nature is mute. You understand what I mean? Nature gives no clue, he tells you. Man is alone in the cosmos with his complexes and his obsessions. He confers meaning. There is no, uh, there is no a priori reality to which ethics or intent can be attached. I reject this. I think the entire message of the psychedelic experience, which is basically the, the sine qua non of the rebirth of alchemical understanding, the, the very basis of that understanding is that nature seeks to communicate. All being uh, is pregnant with language. All reality wants to include uh, the, the, the human side of nature in its ongoing intent. The problem lies not with nature, but with ourselves, that we are somehow uh, paralyzed, disempowered, doubting, cut from the, uh, the meat of the thing. Well, so I'm a great believer in propaganda, obviously. I mean, my whole life is about propaganda. So to take an incident like the career of Frederick the Elector Palatine of Heidelberg and his bride and make of it uh, a kind of exemplar, a parable, a myth, if you will, Uh, the myth of the alchemical marriage, a myth that takes innocence and naivete and uh, belief in the power of ideas to make a new world and tell that story again in film, backing it with these tremendously powerful alchemical images that uh, Jung and others showed work inexorably on the psyche, whether you wish to be part of the process or not, to merely gaze upon the images of alchemy is to, in a sense, enter into a kind of psychoanalytical process because what alchemy was 
and I should stress this or the rap makes no sense at all, alchemy was not the vulgar pursuit of the transmutation of lesser metals into gold or silver. That was uh, the charlatan's game played in every market in Europe for centuries uh, among the simple people. But the body of symbols and of literature that accreted around the effort to extract a universal medicine out of nature for the transformation of societies and human beings uh, was in those times of what we call epistemological naivete, meaning that they did not have the strong sense of objective and subjective reality which we inherit from science. So during those eras of epistemological naivete, what was someone's idea about how matter behaves, what was someone's myth of how psyche behaves, could become entangled in a projective experience with uh, uh, material in a chemical vessel. So the processes which we call uh, melting and crystallinization and purification and calcinization, processes now well understood through a soulless molecular model of matter were for them the birth of the red lion, the coming of the, of the double-headed queen, uh, the murder of the hermaphrodite dog, and so forth and so on. They had these outlandish images and outlandish vocabulary because they were trying to create powerful symbols, powerful mnemonic hooks on which to hold uh, the, the, the details, and there are many of them, of this extremely complex worldview that were it not for people like Carl Jung, the Swiss depth psychologist, would have remained completely inexplicable to modern people. It is not chemistry, and it is not myth-building per se, as we inherit from the Greeks. It's a very complicated amalgamation, good alchemical word, very complicated amalgamation of psyche and matter. And the reason, I think, it is so resonant with our own times is because our generation, generations of people confined within the 20th century, have in a sense, and by an oblique path, recovered that universal medicine that the alchemists dreamed of by going, strangely enough, uh, to some of the most aboriginal and least culturally assimilated to European and American values people in the world. Shamanism is essentially a living tradition of alchemy that is not seeking the stone, but has found the stone. These shamans, these Hivaro, these Witoto, these Cubeo, notice that they have this same epistemic naivete 
this inability to distinguish between subjective and objective world through the intercession of Newton and Descartes uh, that Frederick the Elector and the alchemists around him and the alchemists that preceded them through the centuries had. Uh, in other words, within the context of uh, the alchemical vocabulary, the psychedelic experience as brought to us through plants long in the possession of aboriginal people appears to be the identical uh, phenomena. Uh, the Hivaro shaman, the Cubeo shaman, does not use a glass retort with cycling sulfur and mercury inside it. Uh, the shamans of the Amazon have uh, attained a sufficient sophistication to explicitly understand that the vessel of alchemical transformation is the body and the head of the experience. This is the alchemical vessel. This is where you will encounter the three-headed dog and the queen dissolving in her bath and the incestuous couple that combine soul and luna to produce the white essence of the panacea of the universal medicine. These are psycho-mental processes. And uh, uh, Jung, strangely enough, was he must have been an extraordinary person because he could approach this without psychedelics through a very careful inspection of the dreams and the symbol-producing processes of his patients over decades, he produced a kind of skeletal map of the psyche. But I maintain in, in that map doesn't fill itself in, doesn't become a living experience until we undergo what is rightly perceived as the alchemical process of dissolution. Dissolution of what? Of the lumpen prima materia of the ego. This is the, the, the shit, the tar, the coal, the dark earth of Egypt, the starting <coughs> material, the loam, the manure, the night soil, the lowest matter, and we start with that, the ego, and dissolve it through the intercession of the spirit. And spirit is a complicated concept. It's not naive. It's phenomenologically difficult to define, but through the dissolving spirit of the plants. And the plants lift the, the imprisoning structures of the ego and the ego flows out into the world. And for some people, this produces panic. Panic comes from the god Pan, whose screams caused people to go mad. Panic. Uh, for other people, it's an enormous liberation. In any case, uh, it, it is an influx of material previously hidden in the unconscious, laden with symbolic meaning, and eventually not to be 
um, sustained in this acidic, dissolving, roiling, liquid state. That's part of the process. But then eventually to be recombined, coagulatio, the recombining, the coagulation, the coming together at a higher level, usually through the application of a process analogous to heat, but psychic heat, which drives off the dross of false assumptions and... uh, false attachments and all of you who have been through high dose psychedelic experiences know that it's very hard to carry stupid baggage through that keyhole uh, in fact it's just you're lucky if you just get your soul uh, and yourself through and intact uh, so what we have here through the psychedelics among certain marginal populations in the 20th century, uh, freaks of all sorts in all times and places within the 20th century, a kind of almost accidental rediscovery of these alchemical truths. Well, okay, so that's good. That's one level. We can do self-directed psychotherapy on ourselves with psychedelic substances out of plants and we can use uh, alchemical symbolism to guide this process and that's all very interesting And but so what? I mean, what's so great about it? Well, I think uh, there's a, a f- one of the most famous of all alchemical axioms is as above so below, meaning always that in every small part of reality there is a tiny reflection of the great overstructure of reality. And in the largest structures are hidden the secrets of the smallest and vice versa. We also have rediscovered this principle in the 20th century through fractal mathematics. Uh, But the psychedelics have brought us back to this alchemical mystery, shorn of any vocabulary for, for dealing with it, shorn of any real living notion of the spirit. And so we have sought as far afield as the Tibetan Book of the Dead or uh, Freudianism or uh, there, there have been various efforts to cast the psychedelic experience one way or another. The hot one now, uh, of course, is shamanism. And I relate to that because I spend a lot of time in the Amazon and with these kinds of people with these kinds of concerns. But shamanism and alchemy are a seamless enterprise Uh, Alchemy, uh, the connecting figure, if you're interested in this, between the shaman and the alchemist is the smith, the worker of metal. And the, the, the shaman and the alchemist, I mean, I'm sorry, the shaman and the smith in primitive cultures are always associated as brother figures. Uh, they both work in metals. Well, what all this means for us beyond the commitment to our own sort of ordering the Wunderkammer of our own private imagination 
what it means is uh, important because if you look around you, the entire global civilization is undergoing some kind of meltdown. Uh, the planet itself is now to be seen as a kind of alchemical retort. The prima materia to be transformed are the nuclear stockpiles, the toxic waste dumps, the industrial wastelands, the populations devoid of hope, the uh, populations uh, uh, at threat of infectious and fatal epidemic disease. Uh, there is a, a great deal of prima materia to be worked on at the historical level of the alchemical process. Trying to manage this rationally with some political ism, fascism, Marxism, capitalism, goes nowhere. It just digs us deeper into the mire and uh, the muck. At the fringes, people like yourselves, people like myself, people I associate, offer endless solutions. Recycling, restraint in childbearing, uh, increased uh, sexual, you know, toleration of unusual sexual styles. Many, many things are suggested, but nothing happens because the primary agenda of society has not yet been dissolved, has not yet uh, come into a state of fluidity sufficient where a new imprint can be put upon it. In the 60s, we thought that all that had to happen was everybody would take LSD and the obvious right things to do would be done. And we expected no opposition to this because its rightness was so obvious. We didn't realize that every righteous crusade in history has marched into the waiting jaws of uh, its oppressors. So, but the spirit doesn't die. It's interesting, I don't know how it's said in Europe, but in America we refer, and have always referred to freaks, as bohemians. And I assumed, you know, you hear about the left bank of Bohemia of Paris in the 20s. And then, and I always went, but why Bohemia? What does Bohemia have to do with Paris? Why are freaks called bohemians? It's because of Frederick the Elector and the alchemical renaissance that he plotted with his wife. Since that time to now, bohemian has meant uh, a marginal political position involved with bizarre sexual practices, strange drug use, and funny ideas. <laughs> <clears throat> well, in the 60s then, uh, LSD was not sufficient, even coupled with rock and roll. It uh, only brought oppression. What it brought, it was like a failed alchemy. Instead of, uh, instead of the dissolving and recrystallizing at a higher and more angelic level, uh, thousands of prisons were built and uh, the entire thing failed. But this spirit is the spirit. 
the spirit of life itself, the spirit of novelty itself, and it will not uh, be suppressed for long in any time or place. So now again, it comes after 30 years, after many changes, and it's among us again. And I assume looking at all of you that to some degree you represent this or act it out or because it's a spirit of dissent that says we will not serve the values of materialism, the values of the ego, and the values that separate and break down the community. So here it is again. And what is different this time that we might have some greater hope of actually coming through to the beginning of the third millennium without having to hang our heads when we tell the story to our grandchildren? And I will submit to you this evening that um, the difference between then, 1965 through 70, and now to the turn of the century, uh, two things. First of all, we have that experience under our belt. We shall not be so stupid again. The I Ching says never confront evil directly and never name it directly because it finds weapons to, to defend itself. We are not an army. This is what Frederick didn't understand. He was a king but he was not an army when it came to the White Mountain. We are not an army, so our strategy must be stealth. It's an alchemical strategy. And what do I mean by stealth? I mean uh, the house of constipated reason must be infiltrated by art, by dreamers, by vision. And... What is new is that there are massive technologies available to us, not available in the 60s. They were not designed for us. They were not intended for us. It was never ever thought that such power should flow into the hands of freaks such as ourselves. Nevertheless, through the perverse nature of the unfolding of the world, uh, we have such tools. And I'm referring, as you probably anticipate, uh, to the World Wide Web and the Internet. No gay kid in Montana, no Chinese scholar in Botswana, no person anywhere with a specialized interest or predilection now need feel alone. There is no aloneness. You can find your people. You know, one of the things Tim Leary said in the 60s that I always remembered, but I never heard anybody talk about or ever really heard him quote. It was a great rallying cry. It was much better than turn on, tune in, drop out. And it was this. It was find the others. Find the others, and then you will know what to do. Well, now you can find. 
the others. You don't have to stick a flower in your hair and go to San Francisco. Uh, You just uh, go to the web. Find the others. We all need to create affinity groups, which are subsets of the much larger community that we're part of. And then, using this technology, which was designed to keep track of us, to pick our pockets and to sell us junk we don't want, use this technology to produce art, massive amounts of subversive art. And all art is subversive. I'm not calling for an ideological agenda. All truth which springs from the individual is subversive because, and this is a a theme of mine that I'm getting more and more into the longer I live, culture is not your friend. This is an odd message for the late 90s because we're all being told, you know, you, you, you knew you were Jewish, but you forgot your Sicilian grandmother. You have to honor all of your family. You Romanian, bring it forward, the dances of this, that, and the other. I hate all of this stuff. I'm Irish. It's a weird thing to be. It's a haunted, uh, twisted people as a people. All peoples, meaning tribes, have horrible stories to tell about who they did under and who they screwed over. And when you're asked to identify with your culture, you're asked to take this on. I, I, I reject it. Uh, my brother, years ago, invented this term. He, he called it extra-environmental. He said, this is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra-environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. There's a wonderful English uh, poet and writer, Rudyard Kipling, and he wrote a children's short story called The Cat Who Walked By Himself. And it's a story of how the dog came to the cave of man and would lay at the man's feet. But the cat would never come. And when the woman asked the cat why it would never come, it said, I am the cat who walks by himself. And all places are alike to me. And I think transcending our cultures is going to be extraordinarily necessary for our survival. I don't think we can carry our cultures through the keyhole of, of the stretch of the next millennium. Well, how do you shed your culture? How do you transcend your culture? By digging into your soul with the tools that have been given you to make art. This is how cultures are transformed, by art which flows up and actually submerges the previous cultural forms. I mean, uh, uh, the Baroque gave way to later periods simply out of exhaustion. But notice, a style can exhaust itself and still continue as mannerism did out of the Renaissance, for example. And when these exhausted styles are allowed to continue, they become toxic 
they become moribund. It's like keeping a corpse around the house. Uh, there is an obligation to overthrow that, to produce the new, to produce the novel. And by the novel, I don't mean the literary form. I mean all things new. And then uh, it is not the function of the artist to be the critic. Uh, the, the winnowing out, the deciding what is good from what is bad comes later. And that's a community process. The community decides what is good and bad art. But the individual should pour this forth. I mean, this is what you are. You are some kind of a mystery suspended between two eternities. And in that moment, when a mind looks out at a world and asks the question, what is it? In that moment, uh, art can be created. And it is the only form of immortality that I have any certainty of. And it's available to everyone. Uh, And at the present moment, I make no distinction between art and techni. I mean, to my mind, these things are the same thing. A great turning point is in the offing. The world is changing. It's changed before, but not for a long time in our lives not since before our lives, but now it's changing. And there are many, many possibilities. Uh, The English biologist Dawkins invented the word meme. Do you all know what a meme is? It's the smallest unit of an idea. It's like what a gene is to biology. A meme is to ideology. And so... Our, our task is to create memes. Madonna is a meme. Catholicism is a meme. Marxism is a meme. Yellow sweaters are a meme. Create memes. Rainbow-colored dreadlocks are a meme. Launch your meme boldly and see if it will replicate, just like genes replicate. And in fact, and move into the organism of society. And believing, as I do, that society operates on a kind of biological economy, then I believe these memes are the key to societal evolution. But unless the memes are released to play the game, there's no progress. So I think the obligation on people such as ourselves, and I assume probably without exception, everybody in this room falls into the upper 5% of the Earth's population in terms of wealth, education, and freedom. Even if you're some poor, pierced metalhead from the dark side of Mannheim, (laughs) you have a better situation than most people on this uh, planet, a better chance at actually reaching out toward the machinery that shapes reality and having an impact. Well, so then the question becomes, or for some people, is, well, but I, I have nothing to say, or I have nothing to paint, or I have nothing to communicate. 
well, clearly you're not taking enough drugs then. Uh, that excuse simply will not be tolerated. Uh, and and it, if someone finds that decadent or flippant or destructive, then they don't understand what these psychedelic substances are. They open the doorway to creativity. They cleanse uh, uh, the doors of perception. And then, as Blake said, reality is perceived as it truly is, as infinite. Part of what is wrong with our society, and hence with ourselves, is that we consume images. We don't produce them. We need to produce, not consume media. The media is a huge issue. You can't escape it. So what are you going to do about it? The only solution is to drive it, to take charge. Otherwise, you will be poisoned by it. And um, as more and more people are waking up to this, essentially we are seeing, I think, a, a huge artistic revolution, a revolution in values that reaches into science, that reaches into politics, that reaches into every aspect of life, but that is coming from the imagination, thoroughly stimulated and activated uh, by the discovery of all these natural and synthetic substances uh, which perturb the mind. And I'm not denying that a certain amount of social chaos goes along with this. But on the other hand, I can point to pretty psychedelically pure centuries, like the 13th in Europe, and there was still plenty of social chaos going on. I don't think you can lay social chaos at the feet of psychedelics. Uh, I think social chaos is an inimical part of the system. What psychedelics do is they give a direction to that chaos, a dimension of vertical ascent, because inevitably out of the psychedelic situation emerges not despair, not self-indulgence, but wild-eyed idealism. That's the inevitable pro uh, product of any psychedelically driven social process, how well that idealistic idea then brokers its way to the throne, if it does, is, a, is another issue. I don't know if I've hit this technological thing hard enough. I, I hope that you all uh, avail yourselves of the power of the Internet in years past, in speaking to audiences in America, it was maddening to me to find that the environmentalists, the feminists, the gays, the psychedelic people, and I'm not sure if I got everybody, and the space people, the colonization people, none of these people had anything to say to each other. They didn't seem to realize that their marginality united them far more than any difference they might perceive in their positions. And they didn't seem to realize that their political disempowerment was a product of their inability 
to make common cause with uh, people similarly motivated or similarly motivated toward social change. So uh, it's, it's very important to build an inclusive community and a community that has a sense of direction. And I think the Internet empowers this far more than any other tool that has been handed to us except psychedelics. And if you take psychedelics and the Internet and music and put all of that together... You have the basis for a new community that is wider and deeper than you know. The people who are building the new machines, who are designing the new circuitry, who are writing the new code, are all freaks. Uh, I mean, they work for capitalist dogs, of course, because we all do. But, uh, but uh, the, the creative thrust of these technologies is being driven by people just like you and me. And I think this is all tremendously positive. So um, where am I in all of this? Well, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Uh, and then finally, I guess, and I'll just close on this, the alchemical return. Uh, all culture is some kind of myth. All cultural stories, then, have a psychic dynamic to them, which is not suspected by the civilization as it lives, these myths. It has to be seen from outside. And... There is a consistent myth in, in, let's call it just Western civilization without being too precise, a consistent myth. Uh, in the early Jews, you get it as the idea that God will enter history. With Christianity, you get it with the idea that man and God can be consubstantial. Uh, Again, in Islam, the insistence that God will enter history. And then modern science, strangely enough, dumps all of this theology, but maintains the idea that man can become as a god. In other words, the myth that is consistent throughout the entire Western experience is the myth of some kind of defining progressive experience. Well, now we have the power to realize this myth in some kind of, uh, uh, for want of a better word, an alchemical utopia. And I think it's very interesting that at this very high-tech moment in our adventure, the plants return, the humblest of all biology. The plants return and almost stand before us as a, a beacon and a promise. Have you noticed that plants do all their business with dirt and air. This is something we only wish we could do. 
build an industrial society based on nothing more than the ambient uh, dirt and the air flowing past, uh, building sugars and carbohydrates out of gaseous oxygen. I mean, this is uh, quite a trick. The plants stand both in, in the psychedelic sense, but then in the larger sense of the vegetable kingdom, they stand for absolute Tao. They stand for the correct way for life to relate to its environment, effortlessly recycling, vegetatively propagating when necessary, sexually propagating when necessary, uh, immune to pain, patient to the tune of centuries, uh, always building up structure, always maintaining a leavening effect upon the land. All of these qualities of caregiving and uh, uh Well, notice, for example, that all the processes of biology occur below the boiling point of water. If we could build societies that did that, we work at the in the range of hundreds of degrees, thousands of degrees, fusing metals and creating toxicity. So I think the the psychedelic plant revolution which is leading toward the nanotechnological revolution. In other words, the imitating of nature at the atomic level in building of machines and, and the, the management of processes. What all of this is leading toward is a rarefaction, a good alchemical word, a rarefaction of the human uh, imprint on this planet, a spiritualization of humanity and a new order of mind, part machine, part human. Uh, notice that the internet and the computers that it serves are actually made of the materials of the earth. They're largely metals, silicon, glass, copper, gold, silver. These are the products of demonic artifice. These are the things which the alchemists dreamed of. They transform space and time. They allow us to speak at a distance. They allow us to wander through libraries thousands of miles distant. No fact is too obscure, no person so hidden that you can't reach them. Uh, It is, in a way, the perfection of the magical ideal that was developed and uh, unfortunately prematurely launched by Frederick the Elector and his wife here nearby at Heidelberg. And so I'm involved, as I said, in a process of bringing this story to many people who haven't heard it. It's a great story. It's It's a great myth that the underground community should uh, make its own. And, you know, I used it this evening just as the scaffold for this talk, but I tried to hit the things that are important to me, which are 
psychedelics, recovery of archaic lifestyles, use of media to subvert existing paradigms, empowerment of the individual through dissolving the ego through psychedelics, and, um, oh, I don't know, whatever else. So thank you for your patience and indulgence, and if you have any questions, I'd be glad to answer You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, where to begin, huh? Normally, uh, I pull out about a half a dozen or so quotes from each podcast to uh, post on our program notes page. But for this talk, I must have captured about 20 or so. And uh, you can find them via psychedelicsalon.org if you're interested. But I think that uh, one of Terence's key points was made when he said, Shamanism is essentially a living tradition of alchemy that is not seeking the stone, but has found the stone. And uh, after hearing that, I've now been spending a lot lot of uh, my time out in the net searching for other connections between the world of alchemy and the world of shamanism. It's uh, an interesting area to explore if you're so inclined. As I said, though, uh, there is just too much in this talk uh, for me to even begin making comments about. But I do want to mention that uh, when Terence was telling the story about how much he liked Timothy Leary's mantra of find the others, that I was uh, reminded of Sancho and Cody's email address for their Black Light in the Attic podcast, which uh, is findingtheothers at gmail.com, if I remember correctly. And uh, that further reminded me how disappointed I was that I wasn't able to get together with the two of them last weekend uh, when I was uh, in the Chicago area for the 50th reunion of my high school class. And uh, yes, I'm afraid that you heard that right. It was our 50th. And uh, for what it's worth, I can uh, still remember what I thought about the dusty old farts who attended their 50th reunions uh, back in the day when we were only up to our 10th or so. But uh, now I'm one of those old guys myself, so uh, what can I say, huh? However, uh, I do have to tell you uh, what a powerful psychedelic trip it was to be completely on the natch, uh, no drugs of any kind, and uh, then to return to my hometown, uh, uh, one that I hadn't been back to in the past 50 years but one time, and that was 25 years ago. But uh, first I should tell you about what kind of a month it's been leading up to our reunion a few days ago. As uh, you may know, at the beginning of this month, I posted a notice on my Facebook page that I was going to be offline for a while and take the month off. And uh, my plan was to uh, do a little traveling and go visit Gary Fisher, the Stoleroffs, and uh, some of our other friends up and down the coast. But the first thing that happened was a computer crash that wiped out most of my email, uh, including a couple hundred uh, unanswered messages and some, I'm afraid, with MP3 files attached that are now gone from my machine. Then uh, there were a few strange bumps in the night that took place, and uh, uh, which climaxed on the 4th of July when our car was stolen. And uh, so we canceled our travel plans, and uh, instead I continued podcasting. Uh, by the time our car was recovered a few days later, though, uh, and by the way, there was no damage, it was just a joyride, I guess, uh, but by then we'd kind of lost our enthusiasm for leaving town, and... Uh, That's when a couple of my former high school classmates got in touch with me and uh, more or less shamed me into coming back to the Midwest for our class reunion, uh, which I would have had to miss if we'd uh, taken the trip we originally planned. Uh, 
So, last weekend, I found myself back in Rochelle, Illinois, where, I must admit, I had an absolutely marvelous time reconnecting with uh, about half of our classmates, uh, the ones who were still standing, at least. And uh, to me, it was uh, quite amazing to discover that there remains a place I can return to that in uh, many ways still feels like home. At least it felt that way when I was in the midst of so many old friends. In fact, I had such a good time that I stayed until the last minute and thus had to miss connecting with Sancho and Cody as we'd planned. Uh, But never fear, we're going to get together yet one day, and uh, when we do, I'm sure that you'll be one of the first to hear about it. But uh, right now, there's one more thing I'd like you to hear about, and that is the new program from Alexander Biner on his Visionary Artist podcast that uh, features an interview with our good friend Alex Gray. And I should add that uh, at the end of that program, Alexander plays a song by Michael Bustamante titled Finally 1994. And I uh, can't say why, but it's uh, become my new favorite song. Uh, I guess I've probably listened to it a half a dozen times already. And like I said, I can't say why exactly, but uh, this particular piece is uh, just something I really resonate with. So uh, thank you, Alexander and Michael, for bringing those beautiful sounds to my ears. And uh, by the way, you can find the Visionary Artist Podcast on the Cannabis Podcast Network's channel at dopethene.co.uk. Well, that's going to have to do it for me today, and uh, so I'll close once again by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, if you're interested in the philosophy behind the salon, uh, you can hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.